Welcome to the Anachronism Podcast. I'm your host, composer Gustav Hoyer. Welcome back to the Anachronism Podcast. Today I have the pleasure of beginning a two-part series with pianist Benjamin Harding. Some of you may recall about a year ago I spoke to Benjamin about his playing on my album, The Gilded Age, and I thought we'd catch up. Hello, Benjamin. Such a pleasure to have you back on the Anachronism Podcast. Thank you so much, Gustav. It's a joy to be here again. I thought it would be super fun to catch up. It was about a year ago that we were celebrating your playing of music on the Gilded Age. You played the Toccata, the Three Rags. In fact, the bumper music that leads into my uh, podcast is your fine work. Uh, oh, thank Jimmy's you very Shimmies. much. Whenever, you, whenever yeah. a new podcast episode, there's always a little Benjamin in every one. So super thrilled to have you back. And um, what I thought would be fun for folks to hear today, I did a prior uh, podcast on my last episode with a gentleman named Jeffrey Nitch, who's an author and a composer at University of Colorado. And we talked a little bit about what COVID has done in the arts, in particular, his emphasis on entrepreneurship. As a performer, you've experienced a year where essentially you're the venue for sharing your work and your art has been very constrained. Um, I wonder if you'd talk to us a bit about the last year as a performer and some of what's been going on. Yeah, so like um, everyone in the performing arts industry, we've had live performances canceled. And uh, the first one was at uh, Yamaha Artist Services in New York. Um, and then after that, music festivals, um, uh, performance at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln. So all of these kinds of live performances were canceled. But I will say that I think that this is, even though it's a hard situation, and I don't want to minimize this for the performing arts, uh, for several of my colleagues that have lost a great deal They've lost a great deal of, of money, momentum, creative energy. But I will say that this is an opportunity. This is an opportunity for us in the performing arts world, whether it's in higher education or as a practicing musician, to do a systems check on what we're doing, why we're doing it. And a systems check in terms of soup to nuts, a, a full course meal, so to speak, looking at every aspect of our art from uh, ideas, inspiration, potential connection with people, to the business models that we're working with here, whether it's in a large scale or organization or whether it's an individual performing artist, looking seriously at the model that we have used for a number of decades in higher education, um, analyzing the learning process, what it means to learn something, um, what it means to be an artist, 
And so this whole scale uh, analysis is needed now. It's been needed for a while, and the COVID pandemic has put this on the front burner, so to speak, to say we need to we need to do some serious serious work so that when another pandemic happens or another um, issue happens in our culture and society where live performances vaporize, we can say we can be prepared for that and we can help our colleagues navigate that that storm. We were not many performing artists were not ready for this pandemic. We weren't ready for it in higher education, that's for sure. And so I think it's an opportunity for us. COVID-19 is an opportunity for us to retool, to look at uh, our systems from soup to nuts, and just to really uh, mark what is important. It's interesting that as you're talking, I'm, I'm reminded uh, of, uh, uh, well, or, or given an image of, of the whole arts industry, we've been motoring along with uh, really, especially in classical music, a late 19th century uh, machinery, the apparatus of the arts, and particularly of, of the performing arts, classical music, but other arts too, ballet. I, I think there's some similarities in some of the other performing arts that motoring along and having become increasingly out of sync with our society. And we saw financial challenges before the pandemic, all of that. Well, the pandemic, I think, crystallized those problems and and took something that was brittle and just shattered it. And there's still something left because that music, the human conversation that this music represents, still matters. But what what vessel will this conversation continue in? And to your point, the traditional concert venues, and I'm, I'm thinking of an article I just read that talks about with travel being very constrained, there's a whole ecosystem of, of businesses that live on the business traveler. Business travel is stopped almost entirely. And yes. so that means hotels, restaurants, gift shops, luggage sellers, uh, parking lots at airports. You start to cascade out the financial impact of all of the optimizations that had built up to make business travel by air a standard part of, of contemporary life, you just turn that off and the, the ripple effects go out. And I'm thinking of that as you're talking about by closing the concert hall, there's a whole ecosystem of participants financially, the performers, of course, but there's all the secondary uh, ripple effect and then in education, the same thing. So as you look now, as you've gone through the systems check, what are some key findings? What are some things you're observing and maybe things you'll do differently going forward? Yeah, I mean, I'm still in this process of really uh, doing a complete systems check in my own work and my own life. So I'm engaged in higher education. I'm engaged in the performing arts as a practicing musician. Um, and so I'm, I'm still doing a systems check, but sort of the maybe uh, top of mind ideas are that we need to bring our our work what we do 
to the platforms that are already available to us. And that is social media. This is, this is the um, place where people gather and will gather. And this is the place where we can engage with people from all over the world and uh, have the opportunity to have a conversation with people related to what we do and related to what they do. And so building this conversation that's larger than just um, music and what we're doing, but relating it to the other disciplines, the other interest areas of people, uh, and just uh, beginning to make those connections basically through the avenues of social media, video, and uh, and other kinds of and other kinds of media, digital a uh, digital presence. Um, that is the first step and then the second step is going to be what can you offer people beyond that so in marketing i guess they they call it a a lead magnet that that presence online and offering something to somebody of value and creating that value proposition to people to say, if you participate with me, your life is going to be enriched. Your life is going to um, expand in its awareness. And your discipline is going to be enhanced. Your family life is going to be enhanced. And making those direct value uh, connections, so to speak, with what they feel is important and then creating uh, uh, a, a creative endeavor that uh, builds value in their lives. That's, that's what I think at the fundamental level, um, a great new, well, it's not really new, but a, a reawakening of this, this system, this economic system for the performing arts and for higher education and for learning uh, can go. With the emphasis on uh, value, what I'm reminded of is up until even the advent of, of digital downloads, the, the value proposition of particularly the classical tradition was, was basically on autopilot. It was just kind of an assumed cultural milieu and and, and as newer generations came along and digital technology started to change how we consume art in our life across the board, I think there was a social questioning of the fundamental value proposition of, yes. of this classical tradition. And now a new, a new generation of performers and artists that care about this tradition have to answer the call of value. And uh, when you think about that, because you're talking yes. about social media, it, it doesn't, uh, it pays you nothing. And so yeah. as an artist, to sustain your work, you have to make money doing that work at some level, yes. in some association. Yes. What are some of the uh, 
things you're seeing that are working, and particularly if somebody were listening to this podcast and they were to identify you and your work and they wanted to learn more about a, an intensely interesting artist and, and to financially invest, have you figured out yet how someone could basically participate in your work by, by funding it, by this yeah. value exchange? What does that look like? Yeah, sure. Um, and so I, you know, kind of brass tacks, I've been looking at uh, many courses. I'm a subscriber and affiliate to uh, Skillshare. And Skillshare is a wonderful uh, platform for um, artists and creatives uh, that can take these open format courses in video production, in photography, in music production, graphic design, leadership, marketing, it's so fascinating to find out who is on this particular platform. And I've learned a great deal about this idea of uh, affiliate marketing. And so being on social media, you can create several passive income streams that will withstand a pandemic, creating a course for Skillshare, having, um, having uh, a paid uh, uh, platform on YouTube. Um, although these platforms are changing their financial structure, especially YouTube, not so much Skillshare, um, but, um, but at the very least, having some sort of passive income stream where there's revenue coming in. I looked at uh, one of my favorite Skillshare classes in, is in the area of productivity. I'm interested in productivity because I have to. I have a lot of things going on, and so I want to find out how I can be most efficient. And musicians, by necessity, have to be efficient. But anyhow, Ali Abdal is a physician. Well, he was a med student in in Cambridge, and he created this whole business basically around how to be more productive in your life. Then he created an online course to study for uh, the British equivalent of the MCATs. So he had questions and tutorial sessions. And this is while he is a student. This is while he's a student. And people uh, flocked to this course. He had courses on Skillshare, etc to the point where he has created this whole ecosystem of business where I think he's considering leaving the medical field and developing this business full time. Uh, so for a musician, I could see um, several income streams uh, on social media, passive and active income, income streams with folks that you know, develop these courses, have an online presence, are able to teach um, people how to do how, how to how to play music, how to create music in a winsome way. There, there is a lot of opportunity right now uh, in this ecosystem of the digital age because we're so. I can't remember how many Facebook, for example, subscriptions are like a billion. 
billion people or something. Um, that's a billion people, you know, that, that we can, that we can at least begin to create a following uh, and, and a fan base. One of the, my key, key idea shapers, and I forget his name, I believe his last name is Kelly, is a thousand true fans. And so anybody can have, the, the premises. he was the editor of, oh my goodness, I even forget the, the Gustav, do you know? You can I edit this out. I can't remember, we have talked about this and it's escaping me. So we can. Uh... Oh, anyhow, a thousand true fans. If a thousand true fans is defined by having, giving you a hundred dollars for your work, that's, that's a good living for a musician. It's a very solid that's, living for anybody. That's a good, that's a great living. So can you imagine if you had the opportunity from, let's say gift shop merchandise where with like keychains and maybe a practice planner or, or something of this nature to offering a performance at somebody's home for a thousand dollars and you were able to scale um, sort of how people could invest in what you're doing uh, you you can make a living with uh, with this digital presence you really can it's interesting that artists of every kind are asking some of these questions how do you leverage these modern tools social media um, and and uh, how do you bring, how do you find your thousand fans? And I think that's, uh, it's important because the concert hall is not the funnel through which the value exchange happens with a performing artist anymore. It, Agreed. We know that. It's in that went away. It's like your whole marketplace. The, the front counter of your store got wiped out. And so now you have to figure out how are you going to, how are you going to do a value exchange? And, and, um, and it's interesting. Some of, like some of the, the pop bands, for example, they became glorified t-shirt salesmen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. They made, they made more money on the merch than they did with the tickets at these huge venues. And that's been true for a while. That's one of the dirty little secrets. And I'll often tell people when I'm talking about my musical efforts, I said, here's the dirty secret. Very, very few people make money on music because people don't pay for music. They won't pay for music. They'll pay for all kinds of things for yes. whatever reason. They will not pay for music. And that's where streaming services like Spotify are, are laughably, vanishingly small for the actual artists. You get almost no yes. money from them. Um, they're getting any money that Spotify earns mostly stays with Spotify. And the same is especially true with Apple. They're making their money to run the platform. The music is not white. And so that frustrating and discouraging reality part of the artistic journey is working past that and knowing that people can't have a life without music. It's, it's wired into humanity that we, we have to have music. And there's so many things that corroborate that scientifically and otherwise, for whatever reason, there's a, there's this sense that, uh, music is not worth paying for it. So even the big bands that tour, people are paying for the party that is the concert. The party. They're paying for the Absolutely. They're paying for a night out with their friends. They're paying for all the things. They're not actually paying for the music. Not really. That's right. 
And that's it's, right. And I think that reality soaking in on the classical side, which has always been about go into the sanctum, the inner sanctum of the concert hall, be cadaver still and reverent awe before the compositional masterpiece. And um, those days the, are gone. The 19th, yeah, the 19th century created this value system. They created a value system that said, and, and I mean, you have to filter through these biographies, for example, of Beethoven to really find out who he really was. Because the legend and myth of Beethoven is real. I mean, it's been continued for 250 years or so. It's it, Beethoven is this uh, man seen in your mind's eye as this tortured artist craving to be accepted by people, by humanity. And he had this divine imprint that he could only share his music. And his music was the only vehicle by which you could really reach artistic transcendence. That is a marketing tool to be totally crass. You look at the development, though, with the philosopher Schopenhauer and Wagner really embracing this philosophy as music being the highest art form, the direct connection between people and the divine. Well, yeah, if I heard that and said, oh, I, you know, that, that's, that music is the only way by which I can experience a transcendent, uh, a, tra a transcendence, then yeah, I'm going to go to the concert hall. I'm going to go to the concert hall. But that marketing philosophy has worn out. It petered out because people began to question it and say, really, is that really what it's all about with music or with classical music? And so um, it's an opportunity for us to really say at the fundamental level, what is, what is our value proposition? to people and how are we going to connect with people uh, and, and bring them to that place there's nothing special about me there's nothing special there's nothing really special about Franz Liszt he just wrote incredible music he was an incredible person and he he, he made an impact for sure but there's nothing uh, of deity within him. Uh, he, he was just a human being. Um, and I think for us to really just analyze these fundamental value propositions and the systems that are created around them, it's, it's time and we can do it. Everything you said um, really I think spot on that the humanness of these artists has uh, has been lost to. I think you have rightly characterized it was a marketing stroke of genius in the in the 19th century, uh, the 1800s, and then the early uh, 20th century, the the times of even Bernstein, where you have the musician is almost a semi or quasi divine figure in, yeah. in certain mindsets, not across the board, of course. I also think that what modern technology has done has basically 
pulled back the curtain on the Wizard of Oz because now you can have yes. 500 recordings of the Moonlight Sonata from players around yes. the world who are immense, all immensely talented. And you can immediately Absolutely. realize this is, this. it's no longer rare and scarce. It's, it's almost disposably available. Yes. So now how do you maintain that that distinctive scarce rarity like you say of transcendence when it's so ubiquitous and yeah. you may even while hear these pieces wagner's music might be on a an oatmeal commercial so That's all right. of wagner's lofty you know right of the valkyries i'm sure has appeared in commercials almost certainly and and that juxtaposition of what the aspiration of the metaphysical with the absolutely mundane and crass commercial I think that just absolutely is the illustration uh, of, of what you've said. So with all that and reaching out into audiences, uh, you mentioned list, and I do want to come to that a little bit. And mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. because as you're looking at the next chapter, you've shared on social media and you've shared with me that you're going to study the B minor sonata of Franz Liszt. And I'd love yeah. to hear you as a pianist, as an artist, talk about why that piece is important, why you chose that piece, and then maybe help the listeners of the podcast understand what that choice means in terms of the work that it requires and, and why that's more than just picking up a, you know, a sonatina and reading through it on a Sunday afternoon. Maybe talk a bit about the choice of piece and just your journey with it. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved the, the music of Franz Liszt and I've really... Uh, I love his um, I love his story um, a, as a human being um, full of drama, full of uh, joy, full of pain, just a, a real human being that I can I can relate to. This particular piece is uh, I'm going to be framing it in in concert with a, a series of, of videos that I want to present um, talking about the piece. I, I usually talk in my concerts about the music and about my process and hopefully do that with, you know, some uh, win some jokes and, and different things just to connect with people because I love I just love connecting with people. But the listenata is so intense. It's a 30 minute piece and uh, has tens of thousands of black dots in it. And to your point about the Moonlight Sonata being played all over the world, this this piece, I mean, you if you type in List Sonata, there are tons of recordings of this piece, tons of live performances of this piece. And so for me to, to go into this piece, it's a very personal thing. I turned 40 in December and I see this as, wow, it's hit me in a different way, in a different way. Number one, I've outlived a lot of classical composers. So that's, on, that's in the back of my mind. Um, a lot of people in the 19th century have outlived an 18th century. Um, so that's in the back of my mind. I've all, but I, I want in my own life this to be sort of a, 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 a new start, a new, a, new, a new leg in the journey. 
in my life, however many days the Lord gives me. But uh, I, so <clears throat> this particular piece is a spiritual autobiography of List. It goes into the depths of who he was and what he was thinking spiritually. And for me, I want to go through that journey as well. There is, <clears throat> and for List, List uh, wanted to be a priest. He, he, when he was a, a little guy, he really wanted to be a priest. His dad said no. And he found that he was a, a really fine piano player and studied with Carl Cherney <clears throat> and apparently played for Beethoven and Beethoven knelt down and kissed him on the forehead, you know? So he had the stamp of approval. I mean, this isn't the mythology of Beethoven, it's incredible. But anyhow, whether or not that really happened, probably not, but it's a great story. Anyhow, he began to live a life for himself list. And he uh, had many, many affairs with uh, aristocrats' wives. And in fact, uh, he had a long time relationship with a, with a Russian princess. I think it was Russian. Anyhow, through the death of his son, Daniel, he became very circumspect. He retired from the concert stage and moved to Weimar and began to take his religion seriously. And to the point where he got tonsured. So they shaved the top of his head and he took a vow to become sort of this itinerant priest and he wore the cleric robes the rest of his life. And he devoted himself to teaching, composing and uh, a spiritual way of life. Anyway, the piece is about that particular journey, the torment, uh, going down into the depths of Hades, so to speak, and then being raised up into this glorious rapture, raptured state, coming back down into the struggle of earth and demons and sort of the temptations of this world and the struggle to make sense of it all there's just an incredible amount of spiritual autobiography in this piece and i can relate to this i can relate to this especially in this pandemic this this has asked existential questions of us of what it means to be a human being let alone what it means to be an artist. And in my own way and in my own heart, I feel that this music goes into the depths of who I am as a person. And I'm wrestling with sort of these details. And I'm hoping that uh, to a certain extent, the audience will be able to begin to 
uh, go on that journey with me in a performance of it. Maybe not in the in the same kind of meditative state that I'm going through it on a daily basis, but maybe uh, an idea here or there in terms of who they are as a person, what this all means in terms of the cosmos and the pandemic and presidential mayhem. How can we, how can, what does this piece say about who we are at the very core of, of being a human being? And that brings us to the close of part one of my two-part interview with pianist Benjamin Harding. Join me next time for the second half of our discussion where you'll get a chance to hear him play some of the list and we'll talk about some work he's doing on a composition of mine. If you haven't checked out Adventure at Sea or Innocence on Spotify or Apple, I invite you to do so. And thanks for joining. We'll talk to you next time.